What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 56. We're joined today by Amanda Ryman. Amanda is the chief knowledge officer of New Frontier Data, the founder of Personal Plants, and a member of the Ganjier Council. She's passionate about the plant and constantly works to educate others within the space while speaking on webinars and podcasts like this one. Personal Plants is an educational platform dedicated to helping you develop and maintain healthy and balanced relationships with psychoactive plants. From recipes to science-backed insights, they embrace harm reduction and benefit maximization from seed to self-reliance. New Frontier Data is the premier data analytics and technology firm specializing in the global cannabis industry, delivering business solutions that enable investors, operators, advertisers, brands, researchers, and policymakers to assess, understand, engage, and transact with the cannabis industry. Find out more at mypersonalplants.com and newfrontierdata.com. Enjoy the show. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's been a long time in the making. We're, we're here having the conversation now. I am excited <laughs> to have it. <laughs> and, and as I mentioned before, we're, we, you know, we bring guests on to learn about what they're doing in the space and, and talk about their projects. And I think you have probably the most projects of any guests that we've had up to this point, or maybe rivaling some of the most uh, ambitious. <laughs> I've got a few. I've got a few. That's in, and they're all in the cannabis industry. You've definitely found a groove there. Could we rewind the clock and talk about the origins of your passion for cannabis and maybe which of these projects came into being first or kind of how they, how it all got started for you? Sure. Um, so it all got started for me during prohibition times. Uh, I'm originally from Chicago and I have been a cannabis consumer for over half my life. Uh, I definitely have memories of, you know, the days of, of buying it from the guy at the gas station parking lot. Uh, I always like to tell my, you know, uphill in the snow, both directions story that back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have Internet. We maybe had pagers. Um, but, you know, obtaining cannabis was an all day affair. You had to wait by the phone. Uh, you had to be ready to jump whenever your guy was ready. And uh, off you went. So. That was my early introduction to cannabis. I grew my first plant in 1998 in a closet in Chicago in my apartment. Awesome. I had tried for two <laughs> years unsuccessfully to grow cannabis. I didn't have the money for a fancy light. So I used to go down to Ace Hardware and buy a whole bunch of fluorescent lights. And then I would try to trick out like the inside of a refrigerator box with aluminum oh, yeah. foil you were going deep early I That's was, awesome. and i had like a book <laughs> i mean you know i didn't have any online uh, you know opportunities there so i had a book about growing uh plants under lights um and i tried unsuccessfully to grow cannabis and then finally my dealer actually gifted me an adolescent female and my parents got me a 1000 watt high pressure sodium lamp for hanukkah 
And I hung it from chains in my closet. And that was the first time I grew cannabis. And I was really in love with the idea of being able to take that into my own hands and not to have to rely on somebody. But at the same time, it was all still very much illegal. Uh, you know, the towel was under the door. Um, you know, it was, it was that kind of environment. And this is when I was a graduate student in social work. And I was learning a lot about the social justice impacts of the drug war. So I learned about the cocaine crack sentencing disparity laws. I learned about the inability to get college funding if you had a drug felony. And from a social work perspective, this seemed like a really egregious violation of social justice and human rights. So I really wanted to study that and I wanted to change the laws, quite frankly. I know that hmm. sounds like a very lofty goal, but hell, I was, you know, in my early 20s. And I was right? just going to say that. I think everyone in their 20s suddenly feels this motivation to change the world around them and, yeah. and you know, fix society. They've seen the problem. And, exactly. and that's, that's the ambition of youth. Um, not that those are misguided and uh, intense, but sometimes maybe too lofty for what's what's possible. You have to start small. <laughs> yeah, you do have to start small, but you also got to do it when you have the energy. So I thought that, you know, what I needed to do in order to actually change laws was to become an expert. Uh, that, you know, I had to have people that were going to take me seriously. And drug laws especially were a highly stigmatized area. Uh, anybody that came around saying we should change drug laws or legalize drugs was looked at as some kind of crazy hippie, um, mm. you know, somebody who shouldn't be trusted, definitely somebody who shouldn't be in charge. And so I figured that the way to get around that was to get a PhD. I figured, you know, go all the way, become oh, a doctor, yeah. you know, have that credential. And so I applied to UC Berkeley because there was a scholar there who had written an amazing book called Drug War Heresies about the issues related to the war on drugs and how the drug policies really didn't fit into what we would call best practices for policy. So, Oh, wow. So there was already those, there were, there were already cases setting a precedent for the, the gap between reality and the way that some of these are, these decisions are being made. A few. I mean, you could you could count them on one hand, right? There were there was some work wow. happening. Uh, Ethan Nadelman had started the Lynn Smith Center out in New York. Uh, Doug McVeigh um, had a website that was uh, looking at all kinds of challenges to different facts about drugs. Um, so there were a few sources out there, but by and large, it was still very much prohibition based. I mean, this was George Bush times. Um, you know, this was the time when we had militarization of the drug war. So there weren't a lot of voices out there talking about what reasonable policies looked like. So I moved to Berkeley, actually moved to Oakland in 2002 to start the PhD program there in social welfare. And I became a medical cannabis patient. Now, again, it's so hard for folks to imagine today, but before social media, before internet on everything, you didn't really know what was happening in other parts of the country, right? So we didn't get <laughs> yeah. information in Chicago about the burgeoning medical cannabis industry in the Bay Area. And it wasn't until I landed there and became a patient and started going to dispensaries that I was like, holy shit, like this is amazing. Like this is something that is changing the face of drug policy. And it was almost a right place, right time. I had the opportunity as a young scholar to start studying these early dispensaries and early medical cannabis patients. And that's really where my journey began because, you know, it was like being in the garage with the guys who were inventing the computer. 
you know, you happen to be there when something unbelievable was happening and I had the, you know, academic credentials behind me to really start studying it, um, you know, to start publishing things about it. And, and that was really the beginning for me. So you were able to take that, uh, yeah, that academic pretense and, and put the scrutiny to it and really um, run it through the ringer and, and bring some legitimacy in any areas that were lacking it, even pointing out where that's missing. That I think people in the weeds, and no pun intended there, is, can probably lose, lose sight of that at times. You need someone that's been through a rigorous program or has that analytical mindset to kind of come in um, and like kind of pierce the the darkness, you know, or be that light on the horizon. Absolutely. And it really helped with legitimacy. I mean, you know, it was kind of having that dual identity as a medical cannabis patient and an academic that got me in the door. So like when I wanted to do my doctoral dissertation on medical cannabis dispensaries in a time when they were still highly stigmatized and criminalized, and I would go and talk to the owner and say, hey, I want to sit in your dispensary and survey your patients. And they'd be like, who the hell are you? And like, why should I trust you? And I would be like, well, I'm a medical cannabis patient. And I've got a letter from UC Berkeley saying that they are sanctioning this study. And it was really the combination of those two things that allowed me entree into that world and made people feel comfortable with me. Um, Because they would see that, you know, I was surveying patients and I was also smoking a joint. And, you know, like I was part of their world. the suit that was there visiting. (laughs) Exactly. And prior to this, people were either or. They were either very well-meaning people who loved cannabis but didn't really have legitimacy or they were scientists who didn't really understand cannabis because they weren't consumers. And I was able to straddle both worlds. Yes. Yeah. And walking that line, I imagine, has helped you communicate with people on both sides of the fence as well, you know, talking to scientists then and helping them understand some of the culture and the the passion uh, at the same time, bringing that down and making it accessible to the culture and the community. Absolutely. Um, from there then, uh, were you working as a freelance or just work? That was for your dissertation. Yeah. And then, that was uh, for my dissertation. Awesome. Um, yeah. So after that, I did a postdoctoral fellowship in public health. Uh, at the alcohol research group, because there was oh, no cannabis research group. You know, there, yes. there there still was no academic house for people that wanted to study cannabis. The federal government was still only funding studies looking at the negatives of cannabis, um, looking at cannabis addiction, looking at how to keep it out of the hands of teens. They had a bias in them from the origin of those studies. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know, they were not interested at all in any benefits from cannabis, or they also weren't interested in any research that showed it wasn't as bad as they've been saying it was for decades. So, um, you know, in alcohol, I started to do some research on cannabis, but my mentor there, who's an amazing scientist, she said, you know, if you stay in academia, you're going to have to study what they want to be studied. Like you're going to, because if you want grant money, you're going to have to write about what the they game. want to write about. And she yeah. said, I, if I were you, I would go out on my own uh, because then you're going to be able to study the things that are really interesting to you and that you feel are important. So I basically convinced a dispensary, Berkeley Patients Group, which is one of the oldest dispensaries in the country, um, to let me be their head of research, which there was no head of research at a dispensary. I mean, this wasn't <laughs> a thing, but I was like, hey, bring me on as your head of research and patient services and I will study your patient population. I will help you with all of your ancillary services you're offering to patients. And they agreed. So that's where I conducted my first study of cannabis as a substitute for alcohol and other drugs. 
And that was about 2008. So that was one of the first studies in that area. Um, And that was really exciting for me because, again, going back to social work, I really believe in cannabis as a harm reduction tool. And I believe that it's something that can help reduce the harms associated with other substances, with alcohol, with prescription drugs. And so being able to shine a light on that and show cannabis as a beneficial tool rather than something that's just risky, um, I think was really important at that time. Actually doing the study to show the benefit, not to even talk about the stigma or to even try to clean it. Just let's, let's have a new table here and set up a different placemat, a different perspective of thinking. Um, and yeah, 2008 was very early on too. That's awesome. I think it was maybe 2010. I was in a psychobiology class working on some papers on the effects of cannabis and neurodegenerative diseases. So not necessarily in curing, but in the preventing uh, neurodegeneration. And the professor was adamant that that was not okay. It wasn't federally allowed. It wasn't allowed to be researched. Like my paper was written fine, but it's like not a legal thing to study. And it was kind of a little back and forth, a little spat I had with them. I should have found your paper and actually been like, hey, there are doctorates studying this already. <laughs> yeah, In you know, I, was, I was really fortunate. Berkeley was so supportive of me and my work and, you know, always stood behind me and, you know, defended me when the feds weren't too happy that I was talking about the positives of cannabis. So yeah. <laughs> in that way, I was, I was really fortunate. Um, and then in, in 20, I guess that was 2012, um, the federal government, the, the local DA, Melinda Haig in the Bay Area, shut down a ton of dispensaries. She just went on a tear. Like this woman mm. had something up her ass. She just decided that dispensaries were super harmful to communities based on nothing. And oh, she wow. shut down a whole bunch of dispensaries, including ones that had been around for like 10 years. And Berkeley Patients Group was one of them. Oh, bummer. So okay. They shut down for a while and then kind of reopened as a delivery service while they were trying to get their, their mm. stuff together. And so I left there and that's when I saw that Drug Policy Alliance was hiring. And, you know, going back to those early days of the Lynn Smith Center and Ethan Nadelman, he had always been a huge hero of mine in the space because he was also a PhD. And he was also someone that was talking very early on about the positives of legalization, about the negatives of the drug war, and again, brought that legitimacy to the conversation. So the opportunity to go work for him was extremely exciting. Um, So I got that job and ended up being the California policy manager for a couple years. And then seeing what was happening with cannabis legalization nationwide, they ended up opening a, a Office of Marijuana Law and Policy in 2014 and made me the manager of that. And really from that point on, my sole job was future legalization of cannabis in California. And we started working on the initiative back in 2014. And then of course that ran in 2016 successfully. And after that position, I wanted to be more boots on the ground. I wanted to see how legalization was going to unfold. I wanted to see how communities were going to adopt this new environment of regulation. And so I decided to move up to the Emerald Triangle because that's where it was all happening. Um, To the belly of the beast. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Right to the belly of the beast. You know, this is a community that had relied on, on the illicit market for a very long time. It funded schools. It funded restaurants. It funded shops. Um, It was very lucrative. 
And even though people were getting in trouble and there were helicopters every grow season flying low and arresting people, there was still a huge upside for this community from the illicit market. And now everything was going to change. So I came up here. I became very involved in the community, you know, economic development, um, trying to figure out what a legal market and framework were going to look like. And then I did that for about four years. Um, And then I decided I really missed research. I really missed the data. It was calling you, huh? It was calling me. (laughs) No, I was having dreams about it. And so I I left that position and went to um, New Frontier Data, uh, where I am now. And then in 2020, I founded Personal Plants, which, you know, then we'll talk more about it. But, you know, it's it's an educational platform. And the idea is that because of prohibition, we have had no chance to look realistic, realistically at cannabis. We're either told it's the worst thing, never use it, it's terrible, or we're told it's the best thing, use it all the time, nothing bad will ever happen to you. And of course, the truth is somewhere in the middle. So the idea behind personal plants is to help people develop these balanced, healthy relationships with cannabis that we were never, ever taught how to do um, because That's it was excellent. a just say no mentality. So wow, that kind yeah. of brings you up to now. Right. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been an interesting 20 years. What a journey. Yeah. Um, did you find that in the, on the policy side, there was at times maybe a lack of creativity that is more available on the research and data side? When you find facts and data and research, you can kind of turn and use that data to do what you'd like or to empower and, and, and move, move the needle on things. But in policy and in government, did the facts sometimes not move the needle the way they should? Or was there some frustration there at all? Or, yeah, I guess, what are your thoughts along that line? Yeah, so facts rarely move the needle is something that I found. Um, you know, people make decisions and change their minds with their hearts, not their heads. And you can give someone a pile of data. I mean, believe me, during Diane Feinstein's tenure, the amount of data I delivered to that woman's office on stacks, medical huh? cannabis was stacks <laughs> and stacks and stacks. And when she finally did change her mind on medical cannabis towards the end of her life, uh, her reason for doing so was one I'd heard a million times. You know, I was against this. And then I met someone whose life was changed because of medical cannabis. And once Uh. I met them and I saw the impact that it had on them, that's what brought me around. And we hear that again and again. So unfortunately, even though I think research should feed policy, right? We should ask the questions, we should do the experiments, we should use what we find in order to inform the decisions that we make in policy. It rarely works that way. It's kind of um, a almost reverse game where the research is mm-hmm. done after the fact then to justify the the feelings that someone got. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. You know, or a decision is made that's political And then they say, all right, well, now that we've made this decision, we better see if we know anything about what will happen. And so a lot of the research that's been done on cannabis and its impacts on public health and social justice and all of that came after legalization. Like no one was interested in asking those questions and funding those questions before the laws changed, because there was just this assumption that this is the way it is now. So unless it changes, there's really no point in looking into it. Once the laws change, it's like, all right, well, now we got to know, did we make the right decision? This is suddenly very important to us. Exactly. And unfortunately, even if we figure out we didn't make the right decision, it's very, very hard 
to get things to change. Um, I think a great example of that is excise tax on cannabis. So you know, excise taxes, the whole point of them is to help society pay for the harms associated with doing a behavior, right? Smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, you know, all of these things that have high excise taxes or sin taxes is so right. that there's a pool of money to pay for people's emphysema treatment and cirrhosis of the liver treatment and DUIs from, from alcohol and all of these things. There was this assumption that cannabis was associated with very high levels of harm. And because of that, very high costs. And because of that, they have very high excise taxes, higher than alcohol and tobacco per unit. Yet we know now from research after the laws have been passed that that's not true at all. And in fact, cannabis legalization is associated with a reduction in harm for all kinds of reasons. And a right. reduction decrease in, in, in crime, right? <laughs> exactly. But getting now those laws changed, those excise taxes changed is extremely difficult. So it's like they, that milestone, that post was set. And if yeah. you want to change it, you need to push, push water uphill for a few years and, yeah. and change policymakers' minds. Yeah. That is that is the battle right there, and it's interesting that with as a society we can have these foundations or these um, departments right that are focused all on the data, but the way that we use the data is just kind of uh, you know we'll use yeah. it when it's important, <laughs> right? Or you know we'll 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 acknowledge it exists but still not do anything different, right? Yeah, and we're dealing with a whole the countrywide scale of that with federalization, um, with the DEA and HHS kind of kicking around possible deschedules and things like that. I think in, in hindsight, people will look back on, on any resistant parties as kind of ignorant to like a general awareness of society. It just, just because at, at my level as an, you know, not a politician, just working in the space, it, it feels obvious. It's obvious that there's there's a society ready to approach this. There's people getting benefit. Um, it's it's obvious that there's potential vices and dangers. But seeing so many state markets, it's just crazy how long it takes uh, the feds to move anything. And uh, maybe well, this is the year. I'll eat my words later this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe this is the year. I, I think there's a couple things going on. I mean, one is that it's highly political. So, you know, regardless of what the research says, so sticky to everything else. What, yeah, regardless of what the science says, I mean, people are using cannabis as a pawn for their politics, right? What do politicians care about? They care about getting reelected. That is the thing they care about the most. So they're going to use whatever issue suits them in the time that it suits them in order to ensure reelection. So, you know, cannabis legalization has a huge amount of popularity. But that doesn't mean they're going to move on it right away. They're kind of holding that in their back pocket. When do just I just kind of motivates the crowds, out? huh? Yeah. yeah. When do I need to pull out like the big like number one hit to get the crowd back in my favor at a concert? You know, you don't play that first, right? Right. right. You, you play it when you need. You see that you need them back with you. They're they're kind of drifting. You know, they're they're the applause is dwindling. It's a very evolved form of finally bringing out the lion to the arena for the gladiators as the emperor, yeah. right? Exactly. You need to win a little political favor from your exactly. constituents. <laughs> and the other thing that's going on is that the federal government has lied about cannabis for decades, like flat out lied. I mean, not just right. the status of Schedule One. 
But, you know, the propaganda that they put out, the claims that they make, I mean, they just flat out lied. I've got my Reefer Madness poster here above the desk. Exactly. (laughs) So there's a little saving face going on. I mean, if they Ah, were to come out and say, hey, all those things we told you about cannabis for the past 50 years, we were wrong. That was a lie. I mean, it it really disrupts trust in whatever they say. Um, Not that people really trust them that much now anyway, but, you know, they really can't just come out and say, well, we lied. So they have to figure out a way to soften that position. And I think that's why they're not going to recommend descheduling. They're going to recommend rescheduling because to go from saying it is the most dangerous substance to it doesn't even belong in the yeah. drug schedules is just too far for them to go. You know, it's it's going to yeah, be it's yeah. too much whiplash for the to public. Um, and then in the next time they make a claim about a drug, people are going to be like, well, we don't we use that about cannabis. Right. So or dig into out, the nutritional side of things and those recommendations. There's all right, kind of areas right. that deserve that kind of light, I think, or that may have mistruths propagated. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they're trying to save their own ass in a lot of ways as well and come out with something that they think will appease the broadest number of people. Uh, without having to completely look like they were fools. Right, right. While keeping themselves from being alienated from any supporting parties or uh, any supporting checks. Exactly. I imagine that's a fine line to walk to. (laughs) Well, it is because, you know, we come out in Schedule 3, the industry is going to be mad. The anti-drug people are going to be mad because they think it should be higher. They think it should be like Schedule 2. The general public's going to say... That makes sense. Schedule three, it's kind of in the middle. It's not schedule one anymore. They admit it has medical value. We all accept that. So like the average person, schedule three makes sense. It's really only going to be your pro-con groups that are not going to be satisfied. That see the, they see the extremes. They're polarized already. So any decision is going to further polarize or just uh, isolate them on one of those sides. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation there. And I've seen so many folks kind of reiterating the the pros and the cons. And it's just, it's something I've taken kind of a stoic stance on just that we will know when we know. And for now, I'll worry about, you know, the, what I'm going to do with my thing tomorrow and let the, let the country shake it out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, honestly, nothing that you and I do is going to change the outcome You know, the outcome is going to be what it's going to be. I think we just need to be ready to react to it. Yeah, Um, that's key. Yeah, just be ready, like, for whatever might come and think about what the possibilities are and then be ready for whichever one they land on. And cannabis has made a very agile industry out of all of us. I think everyone's ready to adapt. And they realize how fast laws can change, how, how windows of opportunity can be weeks or months long to maybe kickstart a project or get something going. Um, I think that it'll be an industry that's ready for that change too, ready to pivot. I agree. The focus that personal plants have uh, has, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Um, I have been working on my own cannabis moderation for probably three years and maybe more significantly so this last year as my daughter was born a year ago. So I, life kind of forced me to deal with it a little faster. And um, moderation is something that, honestly, I struggle with immensely with cannabis. I slip into kind of a, a vibe where I just consume all the time, constantly, and it doesn't... I, I can't say I'm still getting the effects, but they're definitely not as high as they once were, but it almost starts to feel vice-like. 
that I can't feel okay without it. And um, I've been able to push back my first kind of consumption or my first dose by the hour, getting it back further in the day until the, I'm back in the evenings, which felt like a little more normal to me. But I, my concern is that the industry, as you mentioned, is like, buy, 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 smoke all the time, you know, try all these products. It doesn't matter, um, you know, 10 for 100, 15 for 30, just selling and selling. And I'm concerned that the new consumer base is going to slip into this little problem that I've been dealing with uh, the last few years. And I, and I love cannabis, but it's just kind of a, it's a little slippery for me. And it might not be like that for everyone, but uh, yeah. What are your thoughts around the moderation in the space and maybe the industry's perspective on it versus what it could or should be? Well, that's a great question. And it's a very sensitive topic among consumers. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, I, I'm 40, how old am I? 47 or 48? 47. <laughs> when you get past a certain age, you have to like do math. Uh, to remember how old you are. So I'm 47. Um, I started consuming cannabis regularly when I was 20, 21. Um, and I was a regular consumer. I mean, smoker, uh, bowls, mostly glass pipe. Uh, you know, I would consume first thing in the morning, uh, continue throughout the day. And I had a very high tolerance. Like <laughs> I was like, a, you know, eat hundred milligrams and go to the gym kind of gal. Like it's still, for, still rolling all day. Yeah. For my twenties and thirties. Right. Like I would teach, I would do podcasts like this. Like, I mean, I, I really just didn't affect me very much. Um, and so I didn't really think about it that much. I mean, it was legal. I had access. It didn't seem to be negatively impacting me at all. And just like you said, like I wasn't getting really high. It was more like caffeine for somebody who's a regular coffee drinker. Right. You know, I mean, right. I, I was feeling a little boost from it, but I didn't ever really feel very intoxicated from it unless I really went to a high level of THC. And then when I was in my early 40s, things started to change. My metabolism started to change and my tolerance started to change. And all of a sudden I was finding that the doses I was using previously were way too intoxicating. And I really, but it wasn't like a oh, good intoxication. It wasn't like a, oh, I feel high like I did back in my 20s. Like it was like anxiety inducing intoxication. So uh, I had to really yeah. think about my future with cannabis, like what was it going to be? And then a couple of years ago, I decided to take a month break, which I hadn't done like ever. The good I mean, old tea break. Yeah. Good old tea break, like 28 <laughs> days. Um, and I will be very honest. It was hard. The first couple of weeks were really hard. Like Just getting I had, to sleep. I had withdrawals <laughs> yeah. for sure. Like my endocannabinoid system hadn't been doing shit for like 20 years. So it was like, what now I got to do things like I got to regulate you. Like what, what the hell is this? What's so this it, about consistent body temperature? It, you want to oh be warm? <laughs> that, you know, that and just no appetite and just irritability and trouble sleeping. And, you know, it went away after a couple of weeks and my ECS kind of got itself in gear and started working again. And then when I went back to it after 28 days, I made a couple changes. One, I stopped smoking. So, you know, I cannabis see. smoking does not cause lung cancer. It does not cause emphysema, but it is not healthy. It is not a healthy activity. It negatively impacts your gums. It negatively impacts your skin. It gives you a constant cough. Like I do a lot of public speaking and I wouldn't, didn't like what it was doing to my voice. 
this call um, would have been less impactful if you had been clearing your lungs here every exactly like every ahem, statement. Ahem, ahem, you know, all the time. <laughs> so I decided to stop smoking. I switched to a dry flower yeah. vape. Okay. Uh, packs. So you still and, get that the flavor. You still get the you goodness still get the of the flavor turps. and the inhalation, yeah. right? The hand to mouth kind of like habit. I still had that. Yeah. Um, I also pushed my consumption to later in the day. Ah, so I was like, you know, during the week after three, um, you know, no, you know, cause that's usually, I work East coast hours. So I work seven to three. Um, and then on the weekends, I was a little bit more generous with myself, but I really tried to wait like at least three hours between sessions. So I wasn't just mindlessly like doing it. I was yeah. like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it away. And then in a do few hours, else. if I want it again, I'll, I'll bring it back. But I'll be honest with you towards the end of last year, I kind of found myself falling a bit into that pattern of overconsumption again. Like I was, you know, having it more like every hour or start, you know, oh, it's the weekend. I'll do it in the morning. Cause I, I've always had this thing about cannabis and exercise that I love. Uh, so if you're and trying I, to get a good workout in, it's like, yeah, oh, I would like, I would like have things. cannabis and then go do my workouts in the morning. Um, yeah. So I was like, you know what? I really have to like, think about this habit. And I think for people out there, who are looking at their consumption and they're like, yeah, I don't think anything really bad's happening to me from, you know, how much I'm consuming, but I'm not really getting high anymore. I feel like I'm just doing it to kind of maintain, um, you know, my, I, if I go out of town or I'm at an event, you know, I'm like, how am I going to get it? And when am I going to use it? And like a lot of my life is kind of centered around whether I have it or not, or when I'm going to be able to use it. Like if this is you, this is a habit. And I, you know, I don't like to throw the word addiction around because first of all, I think the way we define addiction is shitty and There's not. There's some, some stigma there too that's just not really deserved for what it right. is. Huh? So I would say it's become a mindless habit. And it, we have a lot of mindless habits. And one of the things I identified at the end of last year was that my mindless habits were kind of this triad of <laughs> cannabis, social media, and television. Uh, kind of move, moving between your favorite uh, at any one time. Huh? Well, all at once, right? So like <laughs> for me, end of the day was like in front of the TV, you know, mindlessly kind of consuming my cannabis, scrolling through social media where I'm like- Just chilling. With yeah. like Arrested Development or BoJack Horseman or something like mindlessly <laughs> droning on the television. And I was like, you know, I don't like that habit. Like, I, I don't have a lot of free time. I, I didn't feel an energized by it. In fact, during on the weekends, I would feel really restless and kind of crappy after a day of doing that. So I thought, you know, I'm really going to remove myself from this pattern. So at the beginning of this year, and it's, it was a month yesterday, I decided three months, three Ooh. months, no cannabis, no TV, no scrolling social media. Oh, wow. That's a, just, that's a lofty goal. Yeah. Well, Congrats on been, month one. Thanks. And you know, <laughs> first of all, the cannabis is much easier this time around, probably because I wasn't consuming as much. Also because I had been taking little breaks last year. So I took every like first three days of the month, I would take off of cannabis. Uh, so I never, I kind of never let my ECS get super lazy, which I think cut down on withdrawal. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, taking myself out of that environment really helped me stay away from those behaviors. So for folks who are out there who are like, you know, I really want to reduce my cannabis, but like I do these other things and I'm so used to doing cannabis when I do these other things, it's so hard to do them without cannabis because it, they just go together. Like my brain is just like 
oh, you do these things together. Yeah, right. Like you exercise. Know, okay, shouldn't we be a little elated for this? Or exactly, exactly. <laughs> watching TV, so shouldn't we be my, consuming? So my, my suggestion is change more than just one thing. If you want to change your cannabis consumption, change whatever else you were doing when Some you were habits. having that consumption. Like, just yeah. do something different. I mean, since in the last month, I've read like 10 books. I haven't read 10 books since I was in college. It's crazy um, what that free time can do or that kind of uh, drive to do something with your time. Do something different. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that the other thing I would tell folks out there about moderation is the importance of mindful consumption. And I define mindful consumption as awareness without judgment. So be aware of what you're doing, but don't judge yourself for it. Because when we judge our behaviors, we enter into this cycle of pride and shame. Oh, I'm doing a good behavior. I'm doing a bad behavior. And there's emotion attached to that, which can drive you back to the behavior. Um, So, you know, I say if you're using cannabis, let's say it's like, your fifth time that evening and you really didn't want to use it that much, but you just find yourself doing it, like bring attention to that, but don't blame yourself for it, but just be aware of it and be like, well, I'm using more this evening than I planned on. I wonder why that is and kind of think about it. Are you bored? Are you depressed? Are you excited? Like what emotion is attached to that use rather than focusing on the use itself? And Uh, almost look past that then kind of at the, at the environment, what's causing that or what's, yeah, what's you led feel? you to this, right? You no, know, and, and cannabis, just like TV, just like social media, has an amazing way of alleviating discomfort. Yeah, it has a way of just kind of um, making, you, ma- making you happy, right? right. <laughs> Which is what everyone knows and, and loves about cannabis too. But sometimes, I guess, uh, it's like that South Park episode where I think Stan's dad says that cannabis makes you feel okay with being bored. But sometimes you need to feel bored so that you kind of do the next thing that you need to do or you accomplish some goals. Sometimes Uh, discomfort is okay. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes it's okay to be like, man, I'm really bored right now. Or, you know, I'm really sad right now. Or, you know, I'm really angry about something that happened. And to not seek to like immediately get out of that space but instead to kind of sit, sit with it. For a right. And, There's some zenness there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we as a society, we hate moderation and we hate discomfort. <laughs> and so those two things, you know, you talked about the current consumers, you know, new consumers in the cannabis space are a bit different than current consumers. Um, you know, they, the legacy market consumers are a special type of person. Um, you know, people that were consuming longstanding major consumption habits. Yeah. I think I've, I've got like 15 years of almost daily consumption habit at this point. Yeah. And that's pretty common for 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 legacy before legalization, (laughs) newer consumers who like, were like, well, I'm not going to consume until it's legal. They are a little bit different. They're, they're, they're more irregular. They're definitely lower dose consumers, but going back to your question about the industry, you know, we don't want to be tobacco. We do not. And we do not want to be alcohol. And these industries rely on the heavy consumers as their bread and butter. You know, the most regular constant. alcohol is consumed by the heaviest consumers. Most cigarettes are consumed by the people that are smoking two to three packs a day, not the person that has one on their birthday. So yeah. Yeah. as an industry... 
I think it's important if we really want to be different. We talk all the time about, oh, we're going to be different and we're not going to be corporate and we're going to be just and fair and all these things, which is whatever. We also need to be more public health aware. And we have to not encourage people to overconsume, even though you can't die from overconsuming. Yeah. We need to encourage people to have healthy habits around cannabis. And I do think smoking is eventually going to fall out of favor. You can't do it anywhere. It smells. It's, it's kind of a, a nuisance for the people around you if they aren't in the circle. People around you. Yeah, yep. that's definitely so, true. You know, when you look at the younger consumers, the, the folks that are turning 21 now, they want vapes and edibles, right? They want to be able to do this wherever Convenient. they are. Yes. You know, they don't want it, their hands to smell and their hair to smell and have to, you know, go find a corner outside in the cold to consume because Scare you're Scare people bar. away like, with your butane torch. Exactly. <laughs> they want to pop a gummy, like wherever they are, on the bus, on the plane, you know? Yeah. So I, I do think we're going to see the evolution happen. Um, but you will always have those over consumers, just like you do with any activity, whether it's coffee or yeah, exercise. Right. Even comic books, up. you buy too many. Yep. <laughs> There's always yep. that guy who's spending yep. his more money than he should. Yep. You're <laughs> always going to have that. But I think the industry really needs to do, uh, they need to like put people in front of profit and really talk about what healthy consumption looks like and what it yes. is. And that's so hard because, uh, I mean, how unsexy is it for a dispensary to, to start saying smoke less or maybe be mindful about your consumption instead of the kind of the constant drum of saying, come back tomorrow, more sales, get your well, royalty Well, what they points. could do <laughs> is they can offer some lower dose products. I ah, mean, you know, yes. if we're talking about somebody that's going to smoke 20% THC flour versus 10% THC flour, the 10%, even if they're smoking as many times, is still going to be better. Ah, so right. I think if they don't have to tell people not to come back, they just need to give them something besides like the Everclear some diversity. Yes. Of cannabis, right? Like where's the Bud Light? Like where's the, you know, the mild version? Where's the white wine spritzer? The easy sipper. Um, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I do think there's ways to still have people participate in the market, but not necessarily have them, their only choices be these very, very potent products. Macrodose uh, experiences. Yeah. Now, that's a really good point, both on um, like product diversity and on kind of the, the consumer diversity as well in perspective of new consumers. That's something where I honestly, I am too, I am too immersed in the culture of yesterday that I don't even consider that I think that a younger folks wouldn't even buy their first bong anymore to have that lifelong of bong smoking I had. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, it's pretty wild on that front. And, yeah, um, it's, it's very different. I've been trying tinctures for the last month as my main um, method of delivery. Uh, and I, I had a, like a half joint maybe in the middle of January that felt amazing. After, after leaving cannabis and dabs to tincture only, um, it was crazy. But I will say I, I am enjoying the tinctures. I find that they I have a very long duration and I like the measured doses. I'm able to kind of count and track my time against them and say like, all right, I'll go like, you know, half a dropper now and then come back through before dinner and do like three quarters of a dropper. And that's enough. I'm not, I'm not really finding the temptation the same in the way that that instant gratification to fire up the Puffco again and just grab another quick dab before the call with Amanda. Like it's kind of more, um, 
natural, I think, and less of a vice, um, just with the tinctures. Uh, so I don't, I don't know why I'm so surprised by that, but for some reason I was kind of doubting tinctures or I always sort of looked at it like that's not as viable or that's not going to get me there or that, that wouldn't see me through as much as it, as it has been. Well, I mean, first of all, I love tinctures. I think they are one of the most underrated forms of consumption because you do have that fast onset um, and you can really control and dial in that dose. Um, but, you know, the difference is like a coffee versus an espresso. I mean, when you yeah. smoke something, smoking is the fastest way to get something to your brain. And Boom, that's why right? people it's smoke crack versus <laughs> cocaine because it's of immediate bam, right to the brain. And so, I mean, when I mean, and there's a lot of differences, obviously, when we talk about cannabis, but that smoking, you're immediate. I mean, it's like a rush, right? It's right. like you know, rush to the brain. When you take a tincture, sublingual administration is still pretty quick, but it's not as quick and it's not as intense because you swallow some of it. Some of it's going through that liver process of digestion, um, and also there's something about the hand to mouth, you know, I go back to the vape, like there's something about that act yeah, that the ritual really nature. Hooks people, <laughs> you know, and I think that that is why some people have trouble stopping because they are really into that whole hand to mouth experience. And so the idea of just putting something under your tongue or taking a gummy, even if they get an effect from it, it's not the same experience. Right. Right. And I, I really had, like, I had tried tinctures while smoking and like while dabbing and things like that. And I was like, oh, your tinctures are fine. They put a kind of a nice, um, nice buzz. It kind of sits under everything lasts longer, but it wasn't until really truly relying on tinctures that I was like, wow, I am, I'm high right now. <laughs> like that was a lot of tincture, I guess. And like after dinner, I'm kind of laying on the couch, like, what the heck? <laughs> I didn't know that that could happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, and also, you know, cannabis consumption, regardless of form factor, is a social learning experience. So you're, you're bringing <laughs> us a good to kind of adjust it. and learn how to feel high off of what you're doing. I mean, the cannabinoids play a role, but expectation effects also play a role. Yeah, so it can that... take time to transfer from one form factor to another before you start getting that same effect. Because your brain, especially with smoking, like the, the coughing, the way it feels in your, all of that is a signal to your brain that like you're high now. Right. And so tinctures don't that have cloud. that. Exactly. <laughs> but it takes a little time for your brain to adjust to a new form factor. Um, but if you stick with it, as you found, um, it will, it will. Yeah, it was, it's definitely uh, making its way into my rotation, I think. And, and probably for the long term, it's just been easier with family in the house and, and things going on. I don't have to worry about you know, who's, who's nearby or what's going on as much. Yeah. But man, I can, I can still say that that joint just tasted like, like just the most beautiful piece of cake. Like you were just waiting for walking through the desert for days to get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it I was the hard. opposite experience. When I, I, um, after I stopped smoking for a while and then like I tried smoking and it did not taste good to me. Oh, you because then you can finally, you really taste that combustion that was there yeah, all along, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And now, I, I mean, smoking doesn't appeal, it doesn't even appeal to me. Anymore right, after, right. You know, not having not done it for over a year. That's the long-term game. And, and I think there's something about like the time that you spend with the, with the product too, for your mindset to even move into that phase of like more, how am I going to maintain this and be a healthy, loving individual? 
versus just like, I'm going to have fun on Friday night, but let's smoke. You know, I think that that takes some time. Yeah. There's age (laughs) and wisdom in there. (laughs) Well, awesome, Amanda. The conversation has been very enlightening and I think we have many more topics to touch on. We'll have to have you on a return episode here soon. Um, In the meantime, where can listeners learn more about you and your projects or connect with personal plants? Uh, Absolutely. So first of all, this has been super fun. Um, You know, I could sit here and talk about this for hours and hours. So yes, we'll definitely have to have a part two. Um, You can find me on mypersonalplants.com is the platform. Uh, We post new articles every couple of weeks, um, really focused on, again, healthy, balanced relationships with cannabis. We have a lot of great recipes on there as well, because I'm a big believer in really getting to know the plant and growing your own and making your own products. And then we also have a podcast called The Truth About the Plant. Uh, It's on YouTube and Spotify. And we basically take very commonly asked questions about cannabis, like, can you overdose? Can you get addicted? Is smoking worse for you than eating edibles? And we answer them in 15 minutes or less based on science. So it's instead of Googling and then having to cross-reference all of your responses, um, we give you the flat truth really quickly, uh, very easy to understand information. Um, So you can check that out, The Truth About the Plant, on YouTube and Spotify. Um, and then you know, also say we didn't really talk about New Frontier Data, but if you're a cannabis business out there, because that's a B2B play, um, New Frontier Data, we do customer acquisition and media buying, and we can basically tell you not just who's walking through your door, but who isn't walking through your door and how you can reach them. Um, so it's a really interesting model, uh, you know, really trying to understand consumer behavior so that you can bring a wider variety of people into your shop. Uh, so you can learn more about us there at newfrontierdata.com. Hey, excellent, Amanda. Have a good weekend here. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show and our range of services, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis software product management and agile coaching, along with writing services and weekly content. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help. If you want to stay connected, subscribe to the newsletter on our site and to the show on your podcast platform of choice. 